And I got to tell you guys, man, I really do have to say, this has been a hard week for me. <laughs> this has been a really rough week. It started out with all of my kids getting sick, one after the other, in succession, because they couldn't all do it at the same time. And that was followed up by a full week's worth of intensive doctoral classes, because I'm taking the doctoral program up at the seminary. Love the fact that they do remote classes. Of course, with the time difference, that means that an intensive week of class study has me staying up all night, every night for seven days straight, which of course was fun. Uh, and then when that gets done, gets to be Saturday here. And guess who comes down sick this time? Me. So fun fact, I'm standing in the middle of a room with two full air conditioners blowing on me and I'm still sweating out my backside because I am running a fever. But you know what? Stuff happens. But it's just been so hard to get anything done. And it's left me honestly, a little bit stressed about today's sermon and the message that I was going to bring to you. Truth be told, I ever, I only really ever got able to start working on it, really, this morning by my time, which would be last night for your time. And I've been worried about how it's going to come out. I've been worried about uh, whether it would be successful, whether it would be good enough, whether it would be ready enough, because honestly, it's rarely enough for me to just kind of get up here and talk. I have a little bit of a reputation to uphold as a preacher. You see, as a lot of you may know, if not from my sermons here, then from my own work in my own community, which is very online, I have managed to earn myself some small reputation as a bit of a firebrand. You see, I try to tone it down a little bit when I'm doing an away game, as it were. But even in that situation, I've never really been the kind of pastor who avoids difficult topics or softens God's accusations and condemnations of those who abuse wealth and power and privilege, especially when they do so in the name of our loving and merciful God. Now, I admit, I admit, I can be sharp-tongued at times, but it's never just for the sake of, just for the sake of being sharp-tongued. It's for directing the, the harsher condemnations of Scripture squarely at those who insist that Power and mercy and love and all the good stuff about God are only limited to the metaphysical. That God is only concerned with theology and praise and thoughts and prayers far more than God is for bread for the hungry, shelter for the homeless, welcome for the immigrant and outcast and justice for all the oppressed. And honestly, it annoys people sometimes, but I think it is a good approach. But it does have a downside in that it really opens me up personally to a wide variety of criticism and complaint. And some of it, let's be honest, is quite fair and <laughs> indeed accurate. I am hardly perfect in any respect, let alone as a preacher. In fact, it was quite recently pointed out to me that sometimes my preaching can be a little bit difficult to follow, that I have a preference for what for using what one person called uh $50 words in a context where $5 words ought to do just fine. And while I initially experienced this well-intentioned elucidation at, as, a, as a casting of unwanted aspersions upon my hermeneutical aptitude and homiletical adroitness, upon reflection, I had to admit they probably had a point. But all that aside, one thing that me and a lot of my colleagues who share God's passion for justice in the world 
have been accused of time and time again is being divisive with our preaching. And I'm sure you've heard these arguments before. Really, whenever someone preaches a sermon that focuses on God's partiality towards the oppressed, the poor, the hungry, the marginalized, you hear this all the time. Doesn't God want all people to come together in unity? Is, is it not God's alone to pass judgment on the hearts and minds of others? Wasn't Jesus for everyone and against no one? Isn't our Messiah truly the Messiah for, for all people? And ought not a pastor to be in service of Christ, just like Paul, all things to all people? Don't all lives matter, you say? Of course, the icing on the cake always seems to come with, it, with this one last line, which I am sure we have all heard before. Maybe we even let it slip ourselves once in a while. Someone says, no one, not even a pastor, can say whether someone is truly a Christian in their hearts. We often accept this as a bit of a truism, don't we? That no one can really say who is or isn't Christian. And if we believe that wholeheartedly, if we believe that God's table is open to all, then how could we ever say that someone isn't a Christian, that someone hasn't made that deep personal connection in their hearts. Now, before we even really approach Scripture on this issue, I want to instead read to you a passage that comes from the introduction of C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, where he honestly explains this better than I ever could. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and read this, and I want you to listen carefully. He says this, people ask, who are you to lay down who is and who is not a Christian? Or Many May not many a man who cannot believe these doctrines be far more truly a Christian, far closer to the Spirit of Christ than some who do? Now, in this objection, this objection is in one sense very right, very charitable, very spiritual, very sensitive. It has every available quality except that of being useful. We simply cannot, without disaster, <coughs> use language as these objectors want us to use it. I will try to make this clear by the history of another and very much less important word. The word gentleman originally meant something recognizable, one who had a coat of arms and some landed property. When you called someone a gentleman, you were not paying him a compliment, but merely stating a fact. If you said he was not a gentleman, you were not insulting him, but giving information. There was no contradiction in saying that John was a liar and a gentleman, any more than there is now in saying that James is a fool and an M.A. But then there come people who said, so rightly, charitably, spiritually, sensitively, so anything but usefully. Ah, but surely the important thing about a gentleman is not the coat of arms in the land, but the behavior. Surely he is the true gentleman who behaves as a gentleman should. Surely in that sense, Edward is far more truly a gentleman than John. They meant well. To be honorable and courteous and brave is, of course, a far better thing than to have a coat of arms. But it is not the same thing. Worse still, it is not a thing that everyone will agree about. To call a man a gentleman in this new refined sense becomes, in fact, not a way of giving information about him, but a way of praising him. To deny that he is a gentleman becomes simply a way of insulting him. When a word ceases to be a term of description and becomes merely a term of praise, it no longer tells you facts about the object. It only tells you about the speaker's attitude to that object. A nice meal only means a meal that the speaker likes. A gentleman, once it has been spiritualized and refined out of its old course, objective sense means hardly more than a man who the speaker likes. As a result, gentleman is now a useless word. We had lots of terms of approval already, so it was not needed for that use. 
On the other hand, if anyone, say in a historical work, wants to use it in its olden sense, he cannot do so without explanations. It has been spoiled for that purpose. Now, if once we allow people to start spiritualizing and refining, or as they might say, deepening the sense of the word Christian, it too will speedy become a useless word. In the first place, Christians themselves will never be able to use it to apply to anyone. It is not for us to say in the deepest sense who is or is not close to the spirit of Christ. We do not see into men's hearts. We cannot judge and are indeed forbidden to judge. It would be wicked arrogance for us to say that any man is or is not a Christian in this refined sense. And obviously, a word which we can never apply is not going to be a very useful word. Of course, uh, in the decades since Lewis's time, we have done just that with the term. We've spiritualized it clear out of any meaning so that anyone might apply it to themselves unchallenged by mere objectivity because to call someone not a Christian has ceased to be a descriptor and become an insult instead. It doesn't matter whether someone has accepted Christ's call to repentance, community, and faithful service to the oppressed and suffering of the world or not. As even the cruelest tyrant, the most abusive capitalist, someone who treats people as resources to be disrespected and disposed of, an advocate for crimes both subtle and gross, may use may in this definition still claim to be a Christian as long as no one notices their very fine suit and a suspicious lack of a wedding robe. In today's gospel reading, as confusing as this text can often be, and it is a confusing one, we're presented with Jesus's kind of approach to this exact issue. Now, he starts presenting us with a parable. And in this parable, he sets up the context of a royal wedding, which ought to be a great day of fun and merriment for all involved. Now, in those days, any wedding would be at least a couple of days of fun, but a royal wedding, oh man, that would be guaranteed to be an all-expenses-paid social event like no other. And it wouldn't just be a great party, man. Just being invited to a royal wedding was a fantastic indicator of your social position and respect within the upper echelons of society. Getting an invite was like getting a personal endorsement from the king himself, the sort of thing you would mount on the wall outside your business and brag about to anybody in earshot. And the people likely to get an invite to a royal wedding? Well, they'd be exactly the collection of wealthy, elite, toadies, social climbers, and brown nosers you might expect. It'd be a who's who of all the most rich and powerful people around, all milling about, trying to make the best of a kind of awkward social and political situation that was going to cost them much and benefit them very little. So when the invitation came from the king, this king who they had been praising for their entire lives, gaining rich and fat off of the appearance of being a loyal servant of the king, they just didn't show up. I mean, why would they? What benefit, what actual benefit would it be to them to turn up? I mean, sure, it'd be a fun party, but they're rich. They can afford parties whenever they want. And they'd have to come up with a, a suitably expensive and powerful gift, which, given that we're talking royalty here, is going to set them back quite a bit. Then they'd have to navigate all these social complexities of a large group of wealthy peers, many of whom which they probably didn't get along. And all for what? A few minutes in a room with a king? who's going to be too busy doting on his son to let you bend the royal ear at all? No. It's got to be much more beneficial for them to just keep trading on the royal name, showing off that nice royal invite, but never actually do what the king asked them to do in the first place. After all, what would it matter if they just lied and said they were there and then didn't show up? I mean, claim the name, show off the invite, 
Then let your riches and status just convince the world that you were good enough, rich enough, powerful enough to be in that room without ever having to do any of that pesky serving the king nonsense. That's just good business, right? Good stewardship of resources. And, you know, if a servant of the king happened to show up and ask, what gives? Why aren't you at the party? Well, just like any good American pharmaceutical company doing the math on whether it's cheaper to recall a defective product or just pay for the lawsuits for anyone they happen to kill, these finely suited men realize quite quickly that it's probably easier just to get rid of the servant than tell the king later on, I have no idea what might have happened to the slave. Just no idea. Always at the wedding. Don't know what happened to your slave. <laughs> As the Ferengi say, don't trust a man wearing a better suit than your own. Of course, this king here, he's nobody's fool. He realizes what's happened, especially when exactly nobody actually shows up for the wedding. So he sends his servants out again, this time to find people who are likely to appreciate the welcome that they've been offered. People who might see the great wedding, wedding feast laid out before them with delight and relish the opportunity to connect with something greater than themselves. People who might find more in the presence of the king than social obligation and the chance to pad their corporate bottom lines. People for whom an invitation to this table might mean an invitation to justice, to mercy, to a table full of food unending for folks who can't remember eating anything other than soggy bread and dreams. Free refills for folks who haven't had anything to drink in a week. Good people, bad people, saints and sinners alike. The only thing they have in common being the fact that they do not look like the sort of people you would see at a royal wedding. Another king does get his vengeance on the ones who murdered his servants. I mean, what's the point in having an army if you can't murder someone back, right? The empty wedding itself is a bit of a revelation. And in this moment, he realizes the wonderful and incredible truth that those most deserving of a spot at the king's table aren't those who have the right social status, not those who claim the name while slaughtering the servants, but everybody else, everybody except the wealthy, the powerful, the privileged, and the elite. The only thing that matters, the only thing of value, is whether or not they're willing to answer the call and follow the king's son into the halls of glory. So that's it, right? That's it? That's all. That's our, that's our good news for today. Sermon's all done up and tidy. We can go home feeling happy and uplifted and comforted and secure that all we got to do is turn up and all's good, right? There's not like a third part to this parable or anything, is there? Except, uh... <laughs> yeah, there kind of is. There usually is with Jesus. And it's this third part where we get the, the third person of our story. This guy who's just walking around the party without a care in the world like he has every right to be there. Maybe even more of a right than some. Except the thing is, he hasn't got a wedding room. Which if he had actually been invited to the all-expenses-paid extravaganza that the royal wedding was, he would absolutely be wearing. Now, before I get too far, I have heard this part explained in a number of different, equally terrifying ways. I actually recently heard this part preached as an example of how, and I'm not joking, God will condemn you to hell if you show up to church in your street clothes rather than a fancy dress or a nice crisp suit. No. Just no, that's obviously not true. But this is, once again, another one of those places where it is important to understand the traditions of the time. You see, in a wedding such as this, the groom's family, in this case the king, would provide absolutely everything for the guests during the days that they were there. Food, 
drinks, lodging, money, social connective connections, even clothing for the event. It was kind of like throwing a week-long wedding reception at an all-inclusive spa. Everything was provided for, and all you had to do was show that you were part of the wedding party, that you had been invited. But this guy's just there. I mean, surely he's not one of the newly invited guests, since the servants, they went out and they invited absolutely everybody else. He would have had to have been one of the rich folk who was invited earlier. He's still alive. So he must not have been one of the guests who not only skipped the wedding, but also murdered their servant of the king they came across. But still, he's a rich, powerful, wealthy guy who has defined his entire existence by the social power that was given to him for claiming that relationship with the king, all while quietly skipping out on the call. And once he saw the way the things were going, the way the winds were blowing, he just walked right into the king's house with a sense of entitlement big enough to pull planets out of orbit, utterly convinced that he could just stand in that place, public and visible, with no wedding robe, just the sheer power of his social presence, prestige, and sheer freaking hubris giving him the blinding confidence that he was just too big, too important, too vital to the kingdom to be treated as anything less than royalty himself, whether he answered the call of the king or not. <laughs> Imagine his surprise when he realized that it is from here and not some obscure corner of the book of Revelation, that we get the phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Look, it, it it's perhaps too patent simple to say, with the same level of conviction as your garden variety bigot and conspiracy nut, that God hates wealthy people. The world is rarely so black and white as all that, but it is fair to say that God absolutely does show preference. Whatever might be going on, in the secret places of our heart is largely irrelevant. Who we are is irrelevant. Economic stance, status, sexuality, gender identity, none of that matters at all. It doesn't change the conditions of God's invite because God's invite is open to all. What matters is what we do when we get that invitation. Do we wear our Christianity, our invitation? Do we wear it around like a badge of honor, a title that tells the world that we've been blessed by the king? Do we display our Christianity, our invitation, like a shining beacon, telling the world that we're nice enough, good enough, trustworthy enough to be welcomed into the presence of Almighty God? Do we brag about our faith, wrap ourselves up in it like a fine suit so that the whole world around of us can look on in jealousy as we rub elbows with rich and powerful people who see a relationship with the king the same way that we do, as a shibboleth for the word of the world, privilege, and social mobility? Or does our Christianity, our invitation, our faith come to us gobsmack out of the middle of nowhere, blindsiding us in the middle of the day while we're trying to cook dinner and a servant of the king comes to our door with a strange, confusing, and out-of-the-ordinary opportunity? The sort of invitation you'd never expect to be given to someone like you. What do we do? What do we do when we are offered an invitation to a party that we could never have found our way into on our own? What, what can we do but rejoice? So long as we're humble enough to answer the call and show up for the Son and not for ourselves, so long as we answer the call with prayer and supplication, so long as we answer that invitation with thanksgiving, we will be welcomed at that table just as we are, right off the street. Our communities, our countries, even our world are full of people who wear the badge of Christian like the invitation of a king they have no intent to honor. 
people who claim the name, not because it means something to them, not because they intend to grab a robe and join the party, but because they want the world to see them as blessed and beloved. And look, it's true that no amount of firebrand preaching that I do is ever going to change that. A person who is perfectly willing to contribute to the suffering of others, a person who's willing to kill the servant of the Lord rather than humbly answer the call, somebody who's totally content to allow for LGBTQIA siblings to be oppressed and othered, or for black and brown bodies to suffer violence unchallenged, for the poor to get poorer, the hungry to go unfed, the homeless to be left out in the cold, the immigrant to be turned away, or the prisoner to be left to rot in solitude. People who are so sold on the protections of power and privilege, they will rarely surrender them just because we tell them of God's displeasure. But when we allow our understanding of what it means to be Christian, to change in the way that Lewis described, when it becomes a term bereft of meaning and rendered useless, when being a Christian no longer describes someone who commits themselves to the pursuit of whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, and whatever is commendable, then we have taken it from the meaning that God has subscribed to it. That if a person, who whether good or bad, or rich or poor, powerful or otherwise, who answered the call, took up the wedding robe, and gathered, gathered around the sun in service and in love. I don't know about you. Sounds like a real party to me. Thanks be to God. Mm -hmm.